I'm Richard Hollingham and welcome to the Planet Earth podcast from England's largest lake. I've joined the first full geological survey of Windermere since the 1930s, investigating the landscape of the lake bed. Also this week, walking with dinosaurs. But is that on two legs or four? When you watch something like Walking with Dinosaurs, you know, you get the idea that there they are, this Stegosaurus jogging along. But really, we don't know that. We don't know how they could move. We don't know about their muscles and we don't know about the constraints on their locomotion. You know, how far forward could they pull their, their legs? We don't know that sort of thing. Windermere Lake Warden, Windermere Lake Warden. This is survey vessel White Ribbon, White Ribbon. Over. White Ribbon, White Ribbon. This is your Windermere Lake Warden. Go ahead, over. Good afternoon, sir. Um, well, it really is a beautiful day here on Windermere. Around the centre of the lake, you've got the trees above the waterline and the green hills beyond that, and then the mountains. And I'm on board the White Ribbon, which is really a slightly large day boat, if you like, but rather than people with picnics, it's crammed with computer monitors and scientific equipment. And with me is Carol Cotterell from the British Geological Survey. Carol, what what are you aiming to do here? We've got a number of aims with this project. Uh, One of the aims that we're looking at is the lake bed itself and the modern day processes that are going on, both sedimentary processes but also the habitats for the fish, in particular the Arctic char. And on that respect, we're working with the Environment Agency and the Centre for Ecology and Hydrology. But in addition, we also want to know what's going on beneath the lake bed. So what happened in the past, in particular during the last ice age, when the British ice sheet came down this far? So did it leave a series of moraines? How quickly did it retreat? And what we can tell about the glacial processes and any changes to the watershed and the drainage into the lake since that time? I should say, now we're standing on the, the aft deck here, we've got the engines behind, two large outboards, and then a very small cabin, but beneath us, there's a hole in the deck here. Yes, that's actually a moon pool, that's what it's called, and it's quite unusual on a vessel of this size, normally you find them on much larger drilling or geotechnical ships, but here we decided it was much safer for the equipment if we actually carved a hole in the centre of the boat, and we can now deploy our equipment down through the centre of that, so we can keep an eye on it basically, and it's semi-protected. So if we peer down through this hole, you've got an instrument here suspended down, going beneath the surface of the water what's that measuring it's painting a picture of the seabed in a whole color spectrum using sound so what we have are two sonar heads that are angled opposed to each other and they send out a number of beams in total we have 508 beams so 508 sound waves effectively radiate out or pings as we call them And when they hit the seabed, they bounce back off the the seabed or the sediments or anything on the seabed, and then they come back to us and we hear their returns. And from the time it takes for the sound ping to bounce down and come back to us, we can then calculate the depth that that is. Now, if we go inside, I think we can see some of the results as they come in. Let's just follow the the cable from the instrument. Watch out. It's actually quite quite rough, isn't it, (laughs) relatively speaking? Maybe it's because it's a small boat. Into the the cabin here and here's Nick Smart sitting at uh, at the bow and you've got two large computer monitors in front of you with these very pretty colour patterns in three dimensions coming towards us if you like but that's what we're looking at now is that right? It's directly what's below the boat we're running along the edge of a contour at the moment you can see the change in depth which is 
illustrated by the difference in colours. The reds show in the slightly shallower area, and then as it gets deeper off to our left-hand side, it goes to the blue. Then on the other screen, you've got, almost as if you zoom out, this is the path we're following at the moment. So you've got a little icon, which is the boat, and then it's, it's almost like it's mowing the lawn. You've got this uh, swathe of colour behind it. Yeah, effectively, it's just like the strips you see on a football pitch. And Carol, what have you found so far? I mean, I was quite surprised when I looked at these that there was a bump in the middle of the lake. This is one long strip of a lake, but actually it's, it's almost like two. It is almost like two, yes. Across the central section where the current ferry runs, there's actually a, a high in the, the lake bed that comes to only two metres water depth. It's very, very shallow in certain parts. And we think that this is a remnant of this glacial past that I mentioned before, and that this could be a terminal moraine. It could be where there's a more solid bedrock that the glacier or the ice sheet couldn't wear down through. This is material that the glacier would have, would have dumped there, but it's right across the, the centre of the lake. It is. It is right across the centre of the lake, and we've seen it in both the north and the south basin as well, much smaller examples. So material that has come down with the water coming out from underneath the glacier, so you get this sort of outwash of debris that the glacier has ground up as it's been on its journey and it leaves these big ridges that are called moraines and there are a number of different types of moraines and in this lake from a very preliminary interpretation we think we've got terminal moraines which are at the sort of snout or the very edge of the glacier but also a series of degear moraines that build up underneath the glacier. And what's the point of, of doing a study like this? It's trying to understand the, the history and how, how the lake has evolved, how it might evolve in the future, how the species that live within this lake work with this habitat. Are there certain areas that they prefer to, to spawn or to feed? Is there the stratification that we find in the lake from temperature, so the top getting much warmer and the bottom quite cooler? Does that have an impact on the species? So it's, it's a whole number of different things. So you can link this, which is essentially geology, almost the geography of the, of the lake bed, to the biology of the lake. Yes, we can. That's one of the reasons that we're trying to do quite quite a detailed survey here is so that we can start to look at the lake bed habitats as well and the ecology and the hydrology of the lake and the whole system, how the whole ecosystem works together. You're also looking for a monster here. <laughs> yes. Um, when we came down and we launched the boat just over a week ago, we were talking to the lake wardens who were helping us and have provided their jetty, and they asked us to look out for Bonessi. 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 Apparently there have been sightings of Bonessi, and I was shown some photographs that one of the wardens took a couple of years ago. But no sign yet? No sign, no. Bonessi's been quite elusive so far, and I think she hears us coming and just sort of scurries away to the deeper parts where we're not working. Well, Carol and Nick, thank you both very much. We're going to head towards the shore now to see what happens to the measurements taken here on the lake. In the meantime, and this ties in very well with what Carol's just talking about, let me tell you a couple of things I've learnt this week about dinosaurs. Firstly, they're not always that big. And secondly, despite the glossy 3D animations on TV, we don't know much about how they walked. Susanna Maidment at the Natural History Museum in London is studying how and why some dinosaurs evolved from walking on two legs to four. She took me down to the sub-basement of the museum to show me. Let's go around here. This is one of the small specimens, so it's in a cover with a series of drawers. OK, so pulled out one of the drawers... Let's carry it over to the workbench here. 
So we've got in here a, a large drawer, I don't know, like a double-sized sock drawer, if yes. you like. Instead of socks and underpants, we've got <laughs> small bones and bone fragments. These are fossil bones. Yes. And I suppose, well, what's this one? It's about the, the length of my middle finger. Yes. And this is the remains of a of dinosaur? Yeah, this is a primitive bird-hipped dinosaur. This was a herbivorous dinosaur, so a plant, a plant eater. It was two-legged, and it lived um, in the Lower Jurassic period, which is about 160, 165 million years ago, in southern Africa. So actually, this specimen was found in Lesotho. So this is one of the what the, uh, the earliest dinosaurs, the most, most primitive dinosaurs, and it was two-legged, bipedal. Yeah, that's right, yeah. And yet, later dinosaurs were generally four-legged, and that's what you're looking at. Yeah, that's right. The change from two-leggedness to four-leggedness occurred many, many times within dinosaurs. So you know the long-necked, long-tailed dinosaurs, things like Diplodocus, they became four-legged from two-legged ancestors. Things like Stegosaurus became four-legged. Things like Triceratops became four-legged. And all of those did that independently of each other. So they're not closely related. All of their ancestors were bipedal. So my work is trying to understand the hows and whys of why these things kept going from two legs to four legs, which is kind of weird because it's the other way around from what mammals do. I was going to say that. It's really curious, isn't it? Because we think that generally evolution is heading towards us. Yeah. Two-leggedness. Yeah, I think that's it's because we're so us-centric that we think that we are sort of the epitome of what everything is trying to get towards, and mammals went from two legs to four legs to get to us. But, of course, it doesn't have to be that way at all. That's just completely random. So with the dinosaurs, they were two-legged and they went down to four legs. Okay, so let's have a look at this a little bit closer open up one of these boxes within the box so another thing is that people always think of dinosaurs as being these great big massive things but actually the first dinosaurs were really quite small they were just little tiny things and i've got the hip bones here and the back legs so these are the bits that i'm interested in because obviously they're to do with how the dinosaur moved and walked now the hip bone itself is what could easily fit in the palm of my hand i won't lift it up because they're obviously very fragile and then you've got the Upper leg bone, uh, femur, I suppose, that's equivalent. Right, yeah. do, you call, do you call it a femur yeah, in a dinosaur? Yeah, a femur, okay, yeah. femur. And that's about, what, 12 centimetres long, about as long as the uh, middle finger of my hand here. What can you tell from this? The femur has a number of sort of bits of bone sticking out from it, if you like. So we could, we, I'd call them a process, but it's kind of just a lump of bone that sticks out from the side. And this, you can see, maybe it has, it has a few kind of lines running down it. And this is the area where a muscle would attach to this bone. So what I'm trying to do is I'm looking at all the different groups of dinosaurs that became four-legged, and particularly the herbivorous dinosaurs, and I'm trying to see how these sorts of processes change through the, the evolution, and that could tell us about how the muscles changed. So I'm trying to understand how the muscles changed. So you're trying to work out how they went from being two-legged to four-legged. Yeah, exactly. The, the changes, you know, you can imagine it. It must have been quite a profound change in terms of how they moved and how they walked. So I can look at the skeleton and kind of work backwards and say, OK, well, so I've got the skeleton. Can I sort of infer where the muscles were? And I can use information from crocodiles and birds, which are the closest living relatives of the dinosaurs, to kind of help me figure out where all the muscles went. And then from that, I can then go, OK, now how did the dinosaurs move? So we can kind of work backwards. Now, not all the specimens you've got in here are this small. You've got bigger stuff as well in the wardrobes. <laughs> yeah, we have, yeah. Can we go and have a look at something bigger? Yeah, let's go around here. Okay, so this specimen here... <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, 
it's a wardrobe. You open it up, and there's a great chunk of dinosaur in there, completely filling it. What's this? This is a specimen that is kind of closely related to Iguanodon, which is quite a famous dinosaur. You might be familiar with that one. It's known from um, all over Europe, but particularly from England, so that's why uh, everyone kind of knows it when they're a kid. And this has got the plates on, the, no, on its spine. Are, are these no, not these plates? No, these are plates. These are actually parts of the vertebrae. Wow, so, so, the, backbone. so the backbone, just each individual vertebrae, each one is the size of my hand. Way bigger, way bigger. The vertebrae start down okay. here. You oh, so that's just the, the top of the vertebrae yeah, so is the size like of my a hand. Spine okay. that's sticking up off the top of the vertebrae, right. which actually all the muscles that ran down the body would have attached along the sides of these things sticking up here. Now, if I remember from my I Spy Dinosaurs books, Iguanodon, that's, that's quadrupedal. Four-legged? Well, that, it's kind ah, of a controversial okay. one. Oh, um, okay. this, is, this is one of the ones that we think probably did move on four legs, but probably also could have moved on two legs. So some people have said maybe if it was running really fast, it would have got up onto two legs and sprinted. Um, but if it was kind of browsing and wandering around, maybe it was down on four legs. This is somewhere along the transition for this particular group of dinosaurs from a two-legged to a four-legged type. So I'm really interested in, in this sort of dinosaur um, because this is where the transition might be. So once you've studied both the, the small fossils and the larger fossils like, like this one, what do you do with that information? Where do you go next? Once I've sort of understood how the things became quadrupedal, then I want to look at why they became quadrupedal. So I want to look at the centre of mass, which is like the centre of balance of the animal, the point of balance of the animal. So you can imagine if you were going to hold up a model dinosaur on your finger, where it would sort of sit comfortably and dangle with all its four legs on, at the same level. I'm trying to model where this is. And we can do this in three dimensions using computer modelling software. And then what I can do is to try and test some ideas that people have had previously about why things might have gone down onto four legs. This must be pretty exciting because, to my knowledge, no one's done this before, really looked at this before. Yeah, and it's weird because it's not even that. No one's even really looked at how these herbivorous bird-hip dinosaurs move. So the thing is that when you watch something like Walking with Dinosaurs, you know, you get the idea that there they are, this Stegosaurus jogging along, but really we don't know that. We don't know how they could move. We don't know about their muscles and we don't know about the constraints on their locomotion. You know, how far forward could they pull their, their legs? We don't know that sort of thing. People think we know everything about how dinosaurs move, but we don't at all. We don't have a clue. Susanna Maidment at the Natural History Museum in London. And you can see some pictures of the dinosaurs we're talking about on the Planet Earth online Facebook page. And if you become a fan, you can also post your own comments and it'll keep you updated on what we're doing. We're also on Twitter, YouTube, and you can download us from iTunes. This is the Planet Earth podcast from Windermere in Cumbria. And I come off the lake now to the western shore of Windermere, just below Farsori, if you know the geography of this area. And we're surrounded by, as you can hear, ducks and also trees and it's still sunny beautiful day now here on the shore helen miller you're not on the boat today but you're really compiling the results that are coming off the boat that's right yeah so we incorporate the lake level data and then we process each line that the boat has run and using it to basically compute the lake bed surface so you're putting together really a map because they were going all over the place today partly because I was on board and trying to find interesting places but you've got to pull all this I mean vast amount of data together yeah certainly it takes a while to load some of the files they're quite big but what we do is as we go we're computing this lake bed surface and we can identify the areas which we have yet to map this is almost like the control center if you like in a way yes (laughs) yeah the control center Carol Cotterell came off the boat with me. Carol, where does this stuff ultimately end up? 
It ends up with a whole range of different users. Um, We obviously use the work for research, so Helen is actually doing her PhD on this information and pulling all the data together. We'll also do a guide to navigation for the Lake Warden so that the users of Windermere can actually know the bathymetry in more detail. We're in talks with the national parks and also uh, potentially with an aquarium who do a walk-through tunnel with all the different fish species. But we can maybe do them a 3D fly-through along the actual lake bed so that the tourists can actually see in 3D what they're looking at on sort of a 2D page. And you want to combine what you've got here, is the landscape, with, with the geology. I mean, you're the British Geological Survey. You're, you're surely interested in the, in the rocks down here. We are interested in the rocks, yes. The rocks hold a lot of information, the, the sort of uh, formations that are beneath the lake bed that we see nowadays on the multi-beam were imaged by the University of Southampton. They did a seismic survey up here last year. So they ran a huge number of lines and actually picked out the glacial formations and the glacial geomorphology, so the landscape that existed during the last glaciation. And we're trying to tie the two together and understand how everything worked. And ultimately, has this got potential to to be done elsewhere? We think it has, yes. We've already done a survey a couple of years ago up in Loch Lomond, working with the national parks up there, again looking for the glacial features and features that generally in lake beds tend to have been covered by sediment, and so they've been preserved for us to go back and image, whereas any features that are often surrounding the shores of these lakes and lochs have been destroyed either by the building of infrastructure or by sort of dredging or by man's activities. So the lakes could potentially hold a huge key to us of of how things have happened in the past. Carol Cottrell, thank you very much. And I've taken some pictures and video of our travels today, so you can see us on board the boat. You'll find those on our Facebook page. And to catch up with the latest news from the natural world, visit our host website, Planet Earth Online. If you enjoy the Planet Earth podcast, do please spread the word. I'm Richard Hollingham. From me and the ducks here on Windermere, thanks for listening.